Damn, I wish that joke would have landed better. Say it again. (laughs) How did I start that? God damn it. You queued it right up for me. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine. I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Well, it's my turn, John. And this week, I picked The Comet by W.E.B. Du Bois. And I picked this because February was Black History Month, and I realized I had not intentionally picked a short story by a Black author. We shared a couple, I think, in our Facebook group, but that's how I came across this story in particular. It was suggested in a couple different places as like a good example of like some of his sci-fi, which I was like, ooh. Yeah. I remember when I like read it, I was like, this is like like sci-fi in that age is totally different than sci-fi now, right? So I was, yep. I was intrigued. So W.E.B. Du Bois was born in 1868 and died in 1963. 95. Yeah. So he had a nice long life there. And um, I was definitely like, what kind of sci-fi is this going to be? Come, she cried nervously. We must search the city. Up and down, over and across, back again. On went that ghostly search. Everywhere was silence and death, death and silence. They hunted from Madison Square to Spite and Dival. They rushed across the Williamsburg Bridge. They swept over Brooklyn. From the Battery and Morningside Heights, they scanned the river. Silence. Silence everywhere and no human sign. Haggard and bedraggled, they puffed a third time, slowly down Broadway, under the broiling sun, and at last stopped. He sniffed the air, an odor, a smell, and with the shifting breeze, a sickening stench filled their nostrils and brought its awful warning. The girl settled back helplessly in her seat. What can we do, she cried. It was his turn now to take the lead, and he did it quickly. The long-distance telephone, the telegraph, and the cable, night rockets, and then flight. She looked at him now with strength and confidence. He did not look like men, as she had always pictured men, but he acted like one, and she was content. In 15 minutes, they were at the central telephone exchange. As they came to the door, he stepped quickly before her and pressed her gently back as he closed it. She heard him moving to and fro and knew his burdens, the poor little burdens he bore. When she entered, he was alone in the room. The grim switchboard flashed its metallic face in cryptic, sphinx-like immobility. She seated herself on a stool and donned the bright earpiece. She looked at the mouthpiece. She had never looked at one so closely before. It was wide and black, pimpled with usage, inert, dead, almost sarcastic in its unfeeling curves. It looked, she beat back the thought, but it looked, it persisted in looking like. She turned her head and found herself alone. One moment she was terrified, then she thanked him silently for his delicacy and turned resolutely with a quick intaking of breath. I wanted to read that section because um, there are so many parts in this story where I was just taken by the language. And especially in scenes of action where the sentence structure kind of matches the pace. We talk about this a lot in our workshop when someone's writing an action scene. Like if it's a sword fight, it's fast, right? So the character doesn't have time to think about his dead mother. And if you take us on this tangent (laughs) with these longer sentences, it really takes us out of the moment, right? So it's helpful when those sentences are maybe not also abrupt and short and quick, but when they advance the pace in a similar way, like the plot with that pace. So here I thought was like a great example of that because he wants to, Du Bois wants us to know how long they search, right? The story seems to take place like over the course of a day. So we're not going to see them searching all of these places, but we need to see it and know that they did. And so this is how he achieves it. And I, I love like all the long M dashes and all the breaks and he'll go through this like sweeping sentence with like a bunch of commas and stuff. And then he'll say like, he'll insert dialogue and it's like abrupt and separate and different. And I don't know, I just felt like there's like this 
this great pace to a lot of the reading. The plot is one thing and the theme is one thing that we'll get to. I don't think you can hope to achieve either of those. (laughs) So what I focused on when I was reading this was like the language. And I do think that you can aspire to some of this language. And I thought that was a really good example of it. Yeah. Oh, the language is amazing in this. Especially, I thought it was especially good at the the ending before the, um, the ultimate ending when they're alone and the two of them are having this kind of like godlike moment. Yeah. Something about that, the way that was written was just, it was elevated and it, 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 was, yeah. it was reaching for something very uh, divine, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It was good. It was very, very good. In a word, it was good. <laughs> Why is this good? <laughs> we should try to answer that question, I guess. Uh-huh. But yeah, for this, it was just kind of like the story itself felt to me almost like not a fable, but it was obviously speculative. They called it sci-fi in some stories. And then I also learned a new word today talking about like Afrofuturism, which is apparently like a whole subgenre of black authors imagining like a world post-racism or without it or without slavery, all these kinds of things. And then like, it seems like it's kind of like a loosely defined term because then I was talking about like Black Panther and stuff. So I don't know if it's like all like kind of sci-fi centered around like black characters but um the concept was it it was amazing and this was once i read the story understanding that that was a an identified genre this felt less to me like some grand metaphor than something like that you can actually touch this feels like realer now that i know that this is like a genre right and when we call it sci-fi it's like this this could be how something like that happens at first we think we're talking about a comet wiping out a city and the survivors who think they're the only survivors of the world at this point repopulate earth or go on but i liked thinking about it realistically in the sense that it could also be something that ends some of the worst things in the world oh yeah I didn't think about that as a realistic option and it didn't seem tangible. And so once I learned about this like subgenre, I was like, whoa, 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 this is really cool. This is not just like something he inserted. This is the point. Yeah, it would suck to have the end of the world happen and then you survive and you still have to deal with racism. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Come on. (laughs) What was the point of all that? Yeah, so... Obviously, though, on on first read, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is some kind of an example, right? Like, they have one day together. And in that one day, they almost kind of conspire to repopulate Earth in this new, better way together. A white woman of better means and a black messenger who at this time, like, knows that he's looked down on. And they're this unlikely duo that is going to do something great together. But they, they accomplish this whole arc in one one day the world ends in the morning and by that evening <laughs> they're like all right let's do it right that part of this short story experience for the reader is not believable right i didn't feel that arc necessarily emotionally but i felt it kind of figuratively so that's kind of why it felt like a parable to me right when i'm reading like the tortoise and the hare or fable when i'm reading like the tortoise and the hare i'm not like oh who's gonna win (laughs) i'm kind of like sitting back and reading it and thinking like what am i supposed to take from this that's how i read this so i kind of read this short story thinking like what's the point so we're not supposed to like think that the arc is so much the point that's why I'm saying that I think the story and the plot are one thing that you probably can't do unless you're W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Or you're writing in this exact genre, which you need to be a Black author to be doing, I would argue. So otherwise, like, what can you take away from it? And the language is something that we can all learn from here. Just like the pace. And and I don't normally like stories that were probably written more than 100 years ago like this one was. And there's something so um, modern about the immediacy of it. Oh, yeah, unfortunately. 
I do think what you pointed out at the beginning where the, the language is such that it carries you through maybe in ways that the plot doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I don't know that I am fully invested in believing that these characters would do what they're being right. depicted as doing, but the language kind of just builds them up in a different mm-hmm. way. It's not like, here's a real human being, you know, let's experience life through them. It's more of a mythic kind of uh, presentation. Yeah, especially that ending I was talking about. He writes, he's looking over the city from the roof or or more or less. A vision of the world had risen before her. Slowly, the mighty prophecy of her destiny overwhelmed her. Above the dead past hovered the angel of annunciation. She was no mere woman. She was neither high nor low, white nor black, rich nor poor. She was primal woman, mighty mother of all men to come and bride of life. She looked upon the the man beside her and forgot all else but his manhood, his strong, vigorous manhood, his sorrow and sacrifice. She saw him glorified. He was no longer a thing apart, a creature below, a strange outcast of another clime and blood, but her brother humanity incarnate, son of God and great all-father of the race to be. Like that's creation myth stuff, you know? Yeah. And to your point, we've talked about this in other episodes, I think, or at least in our workshop, how another kind of format for a story mimics like those Bible stories, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So creation stories. So this also feels like a creation story in terms of it not being something that you read and identify the, with the characters on, right? I'm not reading this and, and thinking to myself like, wow, Jesus had a tough. <laughs> I'm more thinking right. like, what am I supposed to learn from this, right? What is this example supposed to be telling me? what is like um the message and yeah this mimics that completely a a lot of the criticism for this story talks all about the religious themes which Mm -hmm. i was less interested in because they're obvious it's obviously adam and eve i didn't think that was the point he wasn't being clever with the adam and eve thing he was being clever with what adam and eve would do with this opportunity yeah this is the phrase didactic fiction came to mind okay when i was reading which is like a fiction with a lesson fiction that that's the word i need to be using yeah i always say fable didactic didactic yeah yeah so it's it is trying to tell us something more Mm -hmm. so than you know there is an experience to be had here but it's not necessarily that same kind of experience that you get from just a short story about yeah guy you're just supposed to come out of this and the other end like thinking about the world a little differently right There are points where, because of how great he is with language, we do get like a scene that we can enjoy. I'd argue the whole beginning is that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no, yeah. This, this is definitely written in the fictive mode. Yeah. I used the word elevate earlier. I think that's what I'm kind of thinking about is like when his language elevates, it's like then it's reaching for the mythology. Yeah, sure. So the the section I read kind of glosses over, it's like the montage in the movie, right? Where we see them flitting around town and all these little episodes looking for survivors. But at the beginning, it's a different pace. And it talks about how he gets to work that day and he's sent down to the bank vault, which he's dreading and which is a job that only the black messenger would have to do. So he's like not looking forward to it. And then he happens to escape the uh, comet blast. So it turns out pretty well for him. And that whole scene, I think, unfolds over like the first two, three, two and a half pages three pages so like the sweeping bit about like how they arrive at the idea they come to terms pretty quickly with the idea that they got to 
repopulate. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> not believable, right? But like um, the way that it like starts and lays out and the way they discover each other is like told at a believable pace. Yeah. That part's great. And you can tell that this is a guy that can write that stuff if he wanted to. But I think he wanted to, to use your word, write something didactic, right? He wanted to kind of like gloss over to the point. So he started with something gripping and then he like said, okay, in the lesson kids. But um, yeah. the whole time, the whole time I was like, how is this? Is this not a movie yet? <laughs> like, is this not a fucking Michael Bay? This is blockbuster opening. This is the kind of story like Get Out, right? Where you draw people in pretending that it's post-apocalyptic and then you fucking blow their minds with a lesson they didn't want. This Imagine would be a terrific this, film. The the ending, the way this ends when they're like standing there at the peak of their like their elevation to reuse that word for the hundredth time. And then her father shows up and like he's just he becomes yeah. a black guy again. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, uh, did this guy rape you? Yeah. And she's like, it's horrible. No. Yeah, that scene, even that scene, I would argue, as surprising as it was, it was kind of like, you kind of felt like as soon as her hero showed up that that was going to happen, but it fell apart so quickly in this story because of how much time we had with it. But like in, in the movie or the novel, right? Like this story to me felt like ripe with plot and with message, similar to the last story that we read where I'm like, oh, he could have gone off. He could have done a whole book about it and I would have been there for it because there was so much, there so much exciting stuff about the idea of a comet wiping everyone out and then you could spoon feed people their vegetables with this racist message right and oh my god blockbuster someone needs to make this into a movie this is like get out you go to theater and you think you're watching post-apocalypse and then you get this like terrific complex story yeah yeah that's, that's what best, it did to me the best it's called the comet it was a bait and switch that's right I thought this is about a comet yeah and it was for a while I mean, there's got to be some like 1970s terrible film or something. But yeah, I just I was blown away by this. He did it so quickly, too. Yeah, this is it's well put together. It has yeah. a good um, arc. You know, it builds to what it reaches for. And then the way it collapses is just well done, too. Really did. Really good. Yeah, it's almost like um, like a dream state movie, right? Or book where like, well, we hate these where a character wakes up from a dream. But that's how abrupt it felt at the end. Mm hmm. It was like a dream. It was. That's yeah. a good, good way to think about it. I mean, they convinced themselves, though, that the entire world had been wiped out. It turns out just New York City got wiped out. But if you live in the heart of New York City, might as well be everywhere by the time you hop around town. And so to like see the dad literally drop in from nowhere after his little road trip and be like, oh, geez. <laughs> that was close <laughs> right? right and then our character our main character is just kind of waiting there in the dust and obviously sees his wife but like it, it was over as quickly as it started one thing i want to say about this the way he wrote it there's little moments in here where i feel like the narrative is flinching from different okay. things like when he's when he's first discovering that everyone has died he he tries to look in a streetcar he's looking around he sees dead bodies everywhere and it's like Looks in a streetcar, silent, and within, then the M dash that interrupts that thought. But the messenger but glanced and hurried on. And like later in that same paragraph, on a store steps at a little sweet-faced girl looking upward toward the skies, and in the carriage by her lay, but the messenger looked no longer. He does this several times throughout where he's kind of like begins a thought and then like backs away from it. Like, I don't want to go through with that. And even uh, he started up the street looking, peering, telephoning, ringing alarms, silent, silent all. Was nobody, nobody. He dared not think the thought and hurried on. And even in the section you uh, you read, you know, she's holding the telephone receiver. Yeah. It looked. She beat back the thought. 
but it looked, it persisted in looking like she turned her head and found herself alone. Never tells us exactly what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. What comparison she's making. And uh, a couple paragraphs after that, the world, she could not frame the thought or say the word. It was too mighty, too terrible. She turned toward the door with a new fear in her heart. There's a thought that's occurring to her that she's not quite right. facing. And even when they talk to each other at one point, he's helping her get into a car and her voice caught as she whispered, not that. And he answers slowly, no, not that. And we're not sure what that is. I mean, you know, there's implications. We can make guesses, but it's not stated. It's an interesting uh, thing. In most cases, I don't like it when like if i read a, right. um, a story in a workshop or something and somebody's done something i'm like no just tell us don't well, just tell us it. if it's important because like the risk of misinterpreting is too great yeah there's a story i wrote when i was about 17 that did that a ton and i reread it recently and i was like oh i was ah! just cringing well here i think the plot is like established enough for me that like the premise that I'm reading like aspects of race into into a lot of those exchanges where I don't know like what they're shrinking from, but I do know that like they're both navigating this new interaction that they haven't had to do before. Right. She's pretty upfront about that. She's like, who would have thunk? <laughs> it's a weird little scene where they have that back and forth. But yeah, you're right. He does get away with it. I wonder too if part of why I'm willing to allow some of that is because like I don't know what they're what they could be thinking either. It's almost like they're trailing off because they don't know what to say. Yeah, I mean, some of the earlier ones are like he he doesn't want to look at the dead baby that's in the carriage, yeah. right? And the, he doesn't want to look at what horrible thing happened to these people in a car. that's, yeah. that's pretty obvious. But then, yeah, I don't know what the telephone is supposed to be. Mm, I can. But I, I know, yeah, there's like <laughs> guesses, but it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe that's maybe he's just trying to make us uncomfortable. Yeah, it could be. I mean, because that's a lot of what, you know, the point would be is to make a little bit of discomfort. Right. And the idea that she's just like viewing everything in the world now through this totally different lens. Mm-hmm. She's like, wow, I never talked to black people. And now it's just the two of us. She's like not a very likable character that way. But he seems I'm happy to see him through her eyes, even though I dislike her. Yeah. Shift. Right. That section that you read where she's like, he just she just saw him as like a man. It's like, yeah. And he didn't look like a man that you knew, but he was doing all the things right. He was taking charge. He learned how to drive your car in two seconds <laughs> better than you and <laughs> took you all around town and like kind of called the shots and conceived of the way that they were going to get through this together. And she kind of relied on him. I wonder what it would have been like in 1920 to write a story like that. Like, does it feel good or is it too little too late to envision something like that? Because this, this feels like also some kind of like not comeuppance, but kind of like here's at least one white woman coming around to it. And are we supposed to feel good about it or not? I do think it's interesting that this uh, character eventually went on to create the Garfield comic strip. Yeah, Jim Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a takeaway for this one, John? My takeaway is about the moments when the narrative flinches, like what I was talking about. So in this story, I thought that it could have been handled differently. And I thought it probably would have been better if it were handled differently. I mean, it's hard for me to say that about WB Du Bois and the like, mm. you should have written it better. But that's my takeaway is I feel like it's stronger if you come out and tell us and you just say what it is. Now, there, there's probably, there are probably reasons why you wouldn't want to, and this might be a way to do it. But I, the way that he does it here where the POV kind of were in their head and the character doesn't want to look at the thing or the character doesn't want to it it feels clunky to me when you if you if you phrase it like uh 
well, some of the earlier ones when it's, it's third person, the messenger but glanced and hurried on. Mm. That's better to do than later on when it's more like the... Uh, yeah, in first person, almost like her close third. Yeah, when it's closer third, she beat back the thought, but it looked, it persisted in looking like she turned right. her head, you know, where you're not finishing the thought, you know, the way the thought would occur in your mind wouldn't be a full sentence like that where you could save it to the end of the sentence. It would just be the thing, right. whatever it is, right away. That reminds me what I meant to mention in this story, which reminded me of the story that you picked for your last episode, The Art of Losing, where we do have shifts in perspective. So it starts with the messenger, Jim Davis, and then it switches to her in that scene that I read, where she's the one that has to carry out this part of the plan, calling for help through the telegraphs. Yeah. So we are close to her. But yeah, this one shifted, and then it shifted back to him. I guess it was helpful to kind of hear it from her. Although I didn't care so much about her as I did him just because he's the main character. But yeah. I think for the point of the story, it's it's as much about her change of heart, right? Her kind of coming to terms with what they're going to do together. Yeah. Now that the world's over. I think he was writing at a time when it was more common to do those switches. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that a lot in our group and people always want to know what the rule is, but maybe that's a sign of the times too, right? That we think that there's a right way to do it. This is a good example, the last two of, of how to achieve it and how to decide which parts of which story should be told by which person, which is what we always try to tell folks that are asking about these rules is well the only rule is whoever it makes most sense to hear it from you don't want to switch perspective just to switch perspective yeah i in some ways i, I kind of miss this style of telling stories where you just switched whenever it was yeah. necessary you didn't have to like have a little hiatus or a chapter break or whatever yeah. you don't have to signal yeah you just oh i need to be in her head let me go to her head you know yeah we don't do that anymore and we've lost something by not doing that and again readers care less about point of view than writers do mm-hmm. but when we write or maybe just if it needs to be in somebody else's point of view go ahead and switch switch back later it's fine as long as you signal to the reader and make it clear whose point of view we're in it's it'll work out i think the readers will allow it <laughs> this feels like the kind of advice that will bite us in the ass one day oh yeah the next time we record we're gonna have a story that's gonna be like no no mm-hmm. not gonna work mm-hmm. or we'll spawn <laughs> a bunch of writers who are like watch me shift <laughs> yeah 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 to our 25. Why? We take it back. I'm deleting that episode from the web. For real. Like, we're acting like it's no big deal, but I feel like in the past we've like come down hard on workshop stuff where it's like, what's going on here? Why'd you oh, switch? Yeah. <laughs> I think what happens sometimes, though, like in an early draft that we workshop, is the writer's not necessarily paying attention is too harsh, but not thinking about it in those terms. Right. They know that this thought should be in this character's head and it doesn't matter to them in that draft that they've right. already been in the other character's head for this amount of time. So we point it out and say, that's the wrong head for this, this scene. Mm-hmm. And then the unstated advice is go back and see who you want the scene, yeah, whose head you want to be in. Yeah. Well, my takeaway has nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, my takeaway is mostly just about what I mentioned before, like the language. And I think I've definitely talked about stuff like this before. But in this situation, especially he used a ton of these M dashes, which I think if I saw it in someone else's writing, I would be like, that's too much. But here I'm reminded how great it works if you know how to use them. He uses them as interruptions almost every time. And that is how you're supposed to use them. (laughs) Right. But my 
My point being that I think those interruptions lend to the pace. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily setting the pace with them when they're being used the way you could with other types of grammar. But um, reading it, even the section that I read, it kind of like forces you to like, you feel that kind of frantic sensation when you're reading it, right? They're flitting around town and then he thinks about this thing and then he thinks about that thing. And it's like, it just lends to that fast paced kind of, like I said, frantic search. I don't know. And then he knows when to slow it down and he knows when to have just a beautiful, long, normal sentence with a comma and a period. Mm -hmm. And then he does all these other like run-ons and things. And I definitely talked about it in our group before, but I had a writing professor who forced us to write different kinds of sentences with different grammatical constructions. And that was like one of the most useful things that I learned that summer because in other classes, it was all about just like fostering a writing environment, right? I learned a lot in those too, but this was like a concrete tool that I remembered. And I don't necessarily like use these sentence structures themselves anymore, but I'm mindful of the effect that those different structures have. So if you're one of these people that always, that maybe gets a lot of feedback, like all your sentences sound the same, or it's kind of choppy, or it feels this way or that way. People don't realize that they're commenting on grammar and language and sentences usually when they say stuff like that, but it can be fixed without you like starting from scratch, like add a fucking comma. Yeah. Problem solved. Some people like read a story and they're like, I don't know. It feels cold and distant. And I'm like, it's probably because every sentence has a single verb. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there's probably some science to that. I don't have it. Don't got those details for you. <laughs> but um, this is a guy who, even if you can't be someone that writes Afro-futuristic short stories, you can definitely learn from his writing style, which is sweet. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.